when it comes to kind of urban policy and the complexity of a city, often it is important to kind of understand those local dynamics and whether a solution will be appropriate. And uh, it cannot always be kind of copy-pasted from one place to another. That was my guest today, Sabah Usmani. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We are right now, as I speak, accepting applications for our next cohort of Agents of Change Fellows, and time is ticking. You have exactly two days left to apply, so if you or someone you know is an early career scientist, scholar, or practitioner from a marginalized background pursuing work in environmental health or justice, you can apply at our program homepage, agentsofchangenej.org. All right. Well, for me, this time of year means hunting season, uh, among other things. That's a lot of time sitting in the remote woods here in the north, which is why it was so interesting for me today to speak to Sabah Usmani, a PhD student in the Climate and Health Program at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, who starts off by telling me how the West Side Highway in New York City near her apartment sounds like the sea to her. Needless to say, we have different ideas of calming noises. However, I learned so much from Sabah. She's originally from India and focuses on how cities can be healthier. We talk about the role of urban planners in tackling environmental justice, how our neighborhoods affect our health, and why she's so optimistic about the future of sustainable cities. Enjoy. All right. I am super excited to be joined by Saba Usmani. Saba, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are you? Doing great. And where are you? I am in New York City right now. Um, I live next to the West Side Highway, so I can hear the sound of the traffic, which <laughs> sounds like the sea to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Probably used to it. Well, you are from uh, a long way from there. I know you've been in New York City a while now, but I want to start at the beginning. So you're originally from India and you lived in a number of different cities and towns there. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about growing up there? Yeah. Um, so I'm from India. I grew up uh, mostly in India, but also in Nepal. Um, since my parents, they were always uh, moving around for their jobs in civil service and development. So I actually ended up uh, going to seven different schools by the time I finished high school. And uh, I lived across like a number of different cities in India, in Lucknow, which is the capital of the largest uh, Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, in New Delhi, um, and Kodaikanal, which is kind of a small quaint town um, in the south. So, and when I was nine, I actually moved, left India and we moved as a family to Kathmandu, Nepal, um, and then New York City at the end of high school. And then I actually returned back to India after college to live in Mumbai and work for an urban development firm. So, um, had a pretty exciting, diverse, and sometimes also frustrating and very urban childhood, um, growing up between these different places in different cities in South Asia, um, many of which are kind of mega cities with more than, you know, 10 million residents. Um, I became kind of aware of this kind of unsustainable urban growth that was taking place, um, you know, driven by the opportunities that these cities provide, which actually make people move to different different places, including my parents. Um, but these these urban pressures are straining some of the public delivery services in those cities. Um 
So for me personally, you know, I traveled to school in the local bus, uh, which was often very crowded. Um, we, you know, witnessed kind of informal settlements uh, next to these large kind of luxurious multi-story condominiums, um, traveled in these crowded trains. Uh, you could clearly see there were too many people in these compartments. Um, you know, grew, kind of grew up witnessing much of this kind of urban inequality. Um, you know, it's India is a very unequal country and it's evident in every single sector from health to housing, energy, um, energy poverty and, and other kind of social inequities. Um, but this was always kind of juxtaposed for me with kind of the opportunities that cities provided and, you know, the reasons why people were actually moving there. So, you know, experiencing this firsthand and these extreme disparities in access to space, housing, services, um, sometimes which affects the most marginalized populations most, um, was what kind of shaped my upbringing. You know, I would find myself like biking to office in Mumbai, uh, three feet in, in floodwaters, um, you know, with my pants <laughs> wet from the rain. Um, and, you know, I we would go on vacations once we went to vacation in a in the Andaman Islands, which is an island off the coast of uh, India. And we were caught in the Asian tsunami, which was a pretty a key experience in my life as well. So um, I guess I was always drawn to cities, but also aware of kind of the frustrations and the inequalities present in these South Asian cities, which um, shaped my interest in urban planning and environmental health. And for listeners, if you haven't, I would encourage you to check out Sabah's essay that, that talks about kind of who has access to um, space and resources and really deals with informal settlements and your experience and research looking at them. And we will make sure there's a link with this podcast. So you've talked about this a little bit. Can you expand about how you you think maybe your identity um, was shaped by your experience growing up in, in India and in your time in Nepal and New York City? Mm-hmm. Um, so my experience kind of growing up in South Asia is essentially kind of a story of you know, intersectionality and how different facets of my identity, like gender, religious and cultural background and socioeconomic status kind of shape our experiences. So while, you know, one facet of my identity, like my socioeconomic status might allow me to go to pretty good schools and provide a level of protection, like another facet, like being a woman or my cultural identity or religious uh, minority identity uh, puts me at a disadvantage in many contexts. Um you know, women are like not really present in the informal employment is very low. It's one of the lowest in the world in, in India, I think about 20 percent. Um, there was a recent daily episode about it a few weeks ago. Um, and, you know, it is very apparent when you're in the workplace. Um, you know, I encountered sexual harassment on the street, sexual abuse and some gender discrimination in the workplace um, as a religious minority, you know, women I'm acutely aware of many of these issues that we're facing. India is, you know, has had a history of occasional tensions between the Hindu and Muslim minority community and is presently going through a divisive political phase. And a person who is, you know, from a Muslim family, although I'm not that religious, um, you know, my name is recognizably Arabic and I've faced a lot of discrimination with like landlords unwilling to rent their homes to me. Um, you know, in 2013, when I was trying to get an apartment in Mumbai, 50% of the places that I kind of applied to or looked at didn't consider me because of my name. 
you know, they would sometimes directly ask me questions like, what is your community? Um, and then I would be like, oh, I'm, you know, from, not from here or something. Like I would try to skirt around that question, but I knew clearly what they were trying to get at. Mm-hmm. You know, while Muslims, you know, make up like around 15% of the population in, uh, as a whole, it's like 200 million people. It's a very large minority that, you know, is experiencing different types of um, discrimination. Um, And, you know, in Nepal, when we moved to Nepal, that was my first time kind of being a foreigner. And, you know, although it's not a visibly different identity, you know, you I don't didn't speak the local language and um, kind of my experience as a as a uh, coming from a different country and kind of living as a third culture kid in Nepal was all, you know, was also like an identity that can shape my experience. Um, so, yeah, I continue to kind of overcome these challenges, especially in India as a woman. I think it's, you know, it's something as simple as just going to a cafe and, you know, sitting there by yourself and using your laptop. <laughs> it's not so simple. You know, you get a lot of like people look at you like, what is she doing? Why is she in this public space? So I think like, you know, these kind of things that it, it's like a daily challenge and, you know, daily microaggressions that I think were a part of life that, um, you know, some of my Indian friends in the USA, they didn't realize they were facing it until they were like walking around in Brooklyn. And they suddenly are like, wait, I can't believe I was living in, in you know, in that, this context. So, um, yeah, it's been a big part of kind of shaping my uh, awareness and extent of the problem and how we kind of need, need to take into account, you know, people's intersectional identities and how we sh- how they shape their living experience and not just one aspect of the identity. Is there one kind of defining moment or event that stands out in, in shaping your identity? Um, I think for me, like graduate school and my experience in, in my master's program in urban planning was definitely a very positive defining moment because I kind of discovered my passion for research Um, I got this incredible fellowship and full scholarship to conduct field research in India, in my own country, through the MIT's Tata Center. I'm very grateful for that and spent many months in India doing water and energy planning research there in North India. And, um, you know, I learned, um, you know, the field of urban planning, um, which is what my master's was in, is a very interdisciplinary field. You know, it takes from economics, from sociology, from geography, from urban science, from public health, finance and business. And so just the experience, you know, I was like a kid in a candy store taking classes across these different fields, but applying all these tools I was learning to urban environmental problems. Um, So it kind of really broadened my horizon. Um, So I really don't feel at all limited by kind of disciplinary confines in my own research. You know, my thesis advisors in, in MIT, uh, James Vescode and Afreen Siddiqui, who themselves came from two different fields, um, one from systems engineering and one from geography. Uh, they really supported me in this kind of pushing my limits and showing me how we can like bridge these different uh, disciplinary gaps. Because the problems of the world, you know, they don't really exist in disciplines. And I think MIT was really a very unique and entrepreneurial environment um, with like strong emphasis on hands-on problem solving and design thinking. And, you know, it became pretty clear to me that like, I need to take this forward in my research. And, um, 
you know, this rich experience and methods and tools to solve real world problems. I now, as a PhD student at Columbia, I work at the intersection of urban planning and environmental health and climate and health. And uh, my research very much kind of continues to be informed by this thinking. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm just a science person or just a policy person. Like, I don't really see those barriers at all. And I want to talk more about your research, but first, you've been in the U.S. for, I think it's more than a decade now, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. I was wondering, um, just kind of mostly mostly as it, it pertains to your environmental health research, environmental justice lens, your urban planning, uh, your eye, what are some of the similarities and then differences that you've seen between the U.S. and, you know, in India and other global South nations? Yeah, so living as an international student in the U.S. for over a decade on a number of different visas, (laughs) I've become kind of like aware of, you know, some there are similarities in environmental health disparities um, in the U.S., especially experienced by people of color and low-income communities. Um, But there are also differences. There are issues of health disparities uh, related to like minority, marginalized communities and uh, health burdens that are specific to uh, the global south. So um, in terms of the U.S., like before starting my Ph.D., I worked at the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, which is a large nonprofit, um, global nonprofit, um, where I work. My work was kind of looking at disease prevalence and social vulnerability of communities around high traffic sites in the U.S. Like these are like warehouses and industrial zones. And, um, you know, we saw cases of higher prevalence of uh, various uh, cardiorespiratory conditions like asthma in these areas and also high, you know, a number of people of color and low income communities that live in these fence line neighborhoods um, that are disproportionately affected by pollution and health burdens. And in the global south, um, my experience is primarily in South Asia and Southeast Asia. We see kind of health disparities in both rural and urban contexts, but there are different kind of pressures at play and it's at a different scale. So, for example, um, you know, rapid urbanization, we see uh, like extreme inequality in access to resources and inadequate kind of basic services that contribute to many of these disparities um, with uh, marginalized population bearing most of the burden. So when you think about informal settlements, for example, um, you know, that is the reality of urban life in the global South. Like in countries like India, more than 40% of the urban residents are living in informal settlements, which are sometimes referred to as slums, uh, which is a term that, you know, might more marginalize the experience of these communities. Um you know, these residents don't have access to the same services and, you know, they're often located in more polluted or unsafe environments with greater exposure to air pollutions and other toxins. And, um, you know, basically we need to come up with, you know, we we often look to like places like the U.S. to or, you know, the global now to come up with like solutions for these problems. And, you know, we'll have to go back to the 40s if we're thinking about like slum clearance schemes or things like we don't, you know, we don't want to replicate that in the global south. So we have to come up with place-based solutions that are fair and that are developed in partnership with communities um, that are place-based and actually appropriate for these settings. So we can't always like look for best practices from 
countries like the U.S. for for these issues that we're facing in the global south. Um, so yeah, as, as you mentioned, I wrote my op-ed for Agents of Change about this topic and my own experience kind of working in informal communities in Mumbai and in Quito, in Ecuador. Um, you know, it reinforced my belief in the need for solutions that are developed in partnership with and with a deep understanding of the context and the communities that live there. Um, you know, there's a lot of disparities that exist locally, both in the global uh, north and the global south. But when it comes to sometimes, you know, issues like air pollution in some cities around the world, almost everyone is affected, regardless of their socioeconomic status, because like ambient air pollution can be poor across cities sometimes. So, you know, for example, we experienced, a, you know, extremely poor air quality due to, you know, in the in the in the U.S. recently due to Canadian wildfires a few days ago. Um, but, you know, there are places in the world like New Delhi, where I grew up, where we experience these levels like every single day. And, you know, I checked this morning and the AQI is above 200 in many parts of the city today and has been for the rest of the week, um, the, re the whole week. So, you know, we need to kind of consider health disparities both at the local level, uh, which is where I fo focus most of my research, but also at the global kind of international level, like thinking about environmental exposure disparities um, and health disparities across countries, especially when it comes to kind of these climate mitigation um, negotiations and, you know, the kind of global response to these problems of, uh, to address these disparities. So, yeah, your short answer. <laughs> When you talk about place-based solutions, I think that's somewhat intuitive that the, the solution needs to be focused on the place you're in and taking into mm -hmm. account their circumstances, um, which will be very different than another person's circumstances or another community's circumstances. And I'm thinking of, um, as the editor of an environmental publication, we always think of solutions journalism. And one of the ways we do that is we try to find a place who's maybe doing it right. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a community that maybe has uh, increased air monitoring or they've uh, divested from fossil fuels, whatever it is, as an opportunity to say, hey, look, they're doing it right over here. Maybe we can do this elsewhere. Um, I asked this question somewhat selfishly. Is that a is that a the wrong way to look at these things? I mean, should we be kind of always focusing on very local solutions and not trying to draw those comparisons? Um, best practices are helpful sometimes, but not always appropriate for like urban problems. So, you know, um, when you think about the fields of public health and urban planning, like they, you know, there, there are solutions that are not that place-based, like the medical model where you can, you know, things like vaccines can be transferred across different contexts and are appropriate for different contexts. But when it comes to kind of urban policy and the complexity of the city, often it is important to kind of understand those local dynamics and whether a solution will be appropriate. And uh, it cannot always be kind of copy-pasted from one place to another. Um, and I think that's why, like, you know, it's not always a technical challenge. Sometimes it's an implementation challenge. So we may have like the best cook stove available for, you know, improved cook stove for improving indoor air quality, but it may not be appropriate for a specific context where, you know, they make us, they need to make it like a local dish that they can make using that cook stove. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to understand local contexts when it comes to urban policies. And this speaks to, to researchers and others not just having data or being armed with data, but being armed with 
uh, in a, a cultural understanding, a social understanding, and maybe mm-hmm. spending some time in the community, which I think a lot of folks, including yourself, have talked about in this program, which I really appreciate. So you mentioned conducting some research in India that looked at the planning of energy and water services, and you came away concluding that energy access is a key determinant of health. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what you did, what you found, and why energy access is so key for people's health. Yeah, so during my master's program, I worked uh, as a research fellow, uh, as I mentioned. So I conducted research on developing uh, like a spatial planning framework for uh, generating renewable energy on and along kind of this irrigation canal network in North India, which serves thousands of villages and peri-urban areas um, that run along the canals. So India has kind of a very extensive canal irrigation network that was built over the past 170 years and it consists of thousands of kilometers of, you know, cons- these constructed channels. Sometimes they have like beautiful architecture as well. That was um, for water delivery, primarily for agriculture use. And these canals, they cut through many kind of rural and energy poor areas. Uh, many of these areas, although they often are connected to the grid, they do not receive uh, 24-7 or even 16-hour electricity supply per day. Um, So when we think about energy access, you know, I learned through this research that it's not really binary, whether you have it or you don't have it, but it's like there's a spectrum of energy access uh, in terms of like how reliable it is, how many hours does it, you do actually have energy when you need the energy for specific purposes, um, you know, such as irrigation. So um, my work primarily focused on the upper Ganga Canal, which uh, is a canal that siphons water from the Ganga River, which is the largest river in India. Um, So I was considering both like uh, agricultural and domestic unmet demand for energy in these villages to explore the potential for solar and hydropower on the canal bordering uh, the villages to supplement or serve the energy needs Uh, both domestic and agricultural energy needs for these villages. So I had the opportunity as part of the work to conduct uh, kind of mixed method research, go into the field and talk to leaders, residents, uh, local and state government um, officials, which informed a lot of my research as well as the outcome. And in these interviews, I was often like the only woman in the setting surrounded by men. And, um, you know, women were not present in these interviews, which was kind of difficult for me um, as a woman, as I was aware, like the energy needs and requirements of women may be very different. So I had to kind of make an active effort to include women in these interviews, which was very, very quite challenging because you have to, you know, they are not willing to talk in front of men sometimes. So, yeah, Um, but it. Basically, I worked in partnership with an implementing agency. So these were like the irrigation department and the power department um, to, uh, you know, develop a a framework for them that they can use to plan their energy services along the canal. Um, So, you know, through my interactions, it became pretty clear that, you know, energy access is a key determinant of health, you know, often very intrinsically linked to other factors, both influencing health through, you know, access to healthcare, which is quite direct, but also, you know, through its impact on agricultural output or food and, you know, the linkages between food and water. You know, we need energy access for extracting water, for example, and groundwater is one of the primary um, irrigation methods. So, um, you know, sometimes 
would be like reviewing, I would be reviewing like the census data. I want to find that there's like zero healthcare clinics in, you know, these 50 villages, which was pretty shocking. And the closest clinic is like several kilometers away. And, you know, reliable energy is is essential for maintaining, you know, these healthcare clinics and also for things like maintaining cold chains for like vaccine delivery, which became really, really important during COVID um, and really important for kind of life-saving health equipment and services. Um, so, yeah, like there's a lot of kind of interplay between like energy, agriculture, food, water and health. And, um, you know, a lot of research kind of looks at this nexus kind of focusing on um, these these interactions, which is very important to understand the codependencies between, you know, the energy, food, health nexus. We, we talked about um, kind of understanding social dynamics, cultural dynamics, and something you said there made me think about this a little bit, where you said sometimes maybe women wouldn't, wouldn't be comfortable speaking or wouldn't speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm wondering how you navigate something where you're trying to be culturally empathetic, but also um, maybe parts of that culture are preventing the research or the implementation from being the most efficient. Um, in that case. So I'm wondering how you walk that tightrope. Yeah, I think uh, in my case specifically, I had the lang- like I, I, I had language. Uh, I could um, I was also a woman, so I could enter these spaces like the home. Um, I think it is more challenging coming from a different cultural uh, background w- without uh, the language understand uh, co- to connect. Um, mm-hmm. I think so. I think that was an advantage in this specific case. And I, I think that that is, um, you know, one of the reasons that I think doing research in your own country and your own community, um, you can kind of nav- navigate this uh, more seamlessly um, and kind of push for for those, uh, uh, you know, see if you see some inequity in, the, you know, why, why don't they care about the woman's opinion about this? And then you can kind of push for what of more fair treatment or what you think is in, you know, whose voices need to be heard. Um, I think when you're, when you're outside that context, it's more important to, um, you know, have someone involved that understands that context really well. Um, I think in my work in, in, uh, Quito, that was really important, um, where I always had, uh, local researchers and translators and just folks who are much more familiar with the environment, um, kind of helping uh, unbridge those gaps. Um, That's a good point. Just going in with some humility that maybe <laughs> there are people who um, understand things that maybe you don't. I don't mean you. I mean the royal you of people that are going to do research or, or frankly, journalism in these communities to, to approach it with humility. So I think you mentioned some of your U.S.-based research that looked at um, the intersection of neighborhood factors, social policies, and health outcomes. And I think we, we think of, uh, you mentioned traffic, or if there's a big smokestack, I mean, I think some of these things are pretty intuitive of how they affect our health. But can you talk about this work and what you learned about the ways where we live can impact our health outside of those kind of very obvious things we see? Mm-hmm. So this makes up a big part of my research now, and I'm interested in kind of place and health, as I mentioned, and, and much of the work, you know, I try to focus on this and, you know, where we live and our zip code has this kind of disproportionate impact on our health outcomes. Um, so my work focuses on the built environment, which is like the physical characteristics of the place where we live and how that shapes the health outcomes 
So the built environment can include, you know, access to public transportation, food options, green spaces, biking infrastructure, you know, how conducive a neighborhood is to promoting things like walking, uh, proximity to pollution sources and, you know, where we live and um, how that influences health outcomes and also our exposure um, to different, um, you know, uh, pollutants. Um, and how can we use that to prioritize policy action and investment in cities? Um, place can also impact beyond the built environment, things like crime and job access and schools and other kind of social determinants of health. So, um, you know, this is really important as like more and more people are becoming more urban, like 82% of the U.S. is urban, but the rest of the world is catching up. And um, we're kind of seeing these disparities at the neighborhood level. Um, so I wanted to, in my PhD, kind of understand more deeply how like our neighborhood influences health and what can be done about it. How do we design our cities to improve health outcomes? Not just I'm not just interested in kind of highlighting the disparities because I think there's a lot of research there now, but in how do we, um, you know, design effective urban policies to address them. So one of my projects in my PhD is focused on developing an index of the built environment to capture the aspects um, of the environment that shape traffic and transportation choice and their impact on environmental exposures like air pollution or health outcomes, um, specifically cardiorespiratory health. So, you know, the, the design and implementation of the built environment can affect things like traffic through thing, things like, you know, the, the roads, parking spaces, residential density and other aspects that shape traffic. So as we all know, like when we are in traffic, um, not all parts of the city experience the same level of traffic. So we want to understand, like, what are the aspects of city design that shape traffic and how can we improve these you know, these are like the actionable things that we make decisions on. How can we improve that to address health disparities associated with traffic exposure and different health outcomes? So I'm trying to kind of uh, do a chunk of my dissertation research on, on this topic. It makes my head spin when I think about a, a city and all the moving parts to try to think about that as a puzzle and how people... Um, and how you can be most efficient in making sure the most people, uh, you know, people live a healthy life. And it's, it seems dizzying to try to think about that when I think about a place like New York City. So um, I know urban planning can, can be a research field, but also there's the nuts and bolts of, of planning the planning the city. So I'm wondering what role urban planners can play in reducing these health disparities. And I know you warned me against this earlier, but are there any examples of places that you think are doing it right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean... Ur like urban planning and public health were once like really closely intertwined disciplines. You know, there was like an inherent connection between the physical environment and our well-being. And it's been, you know, from the John Snow era, as many people might know, but also like urban designers like Frederick Law Olmsted, like designed the Central Park. Like there's a lot of kind of it was understood that design of the urban environment influences health outcomes and, you know, it was important for our well-being. Uh, but like these, over time, these fields kind of diverged and kind of subspecialty expertise kind of emerged. And there was like lots of like silos created, you know, where urban planning became more focused on land use, infrastructure, transportation, while public health, more on the epidemiology, healthcare, and disease prevention. 
So it kind of separate this kind of separation resulted in some missed opportunities to address this interplay between our built environment and public health. And I think the pandemic has really brought this linkage back into focus. Um, you know, the virus, COVID has kind of highlighted the this role of urban design and planning in shaping the spread of infectious diseases. And we saw that, you know, everyone kind of saw that. Um, factors like, you know, the overcrowding or inadequate access to open spaces and, you know, limited active transportation, like biking options have kind of been, um, you know, exacerbated the impact of the pandemic often on the most vulnerable populations. And, you know, health equity has been an important part of public health discussion. Um, but, you know, implementing this, uh, not just highlighting is, is is now important, I think. And I think this is the era that we're in and I think a one to be part of. And I feel like in recent years, there's been a lot of effort in combining these approaches more directly in New York City and organizations like the Urban Design Forum, where I was a fellow this past year, kind of working on a project looking at urban policies and programs in, to improve air quality in New York. And we were working with mostly kind of people from across government agencies like health departments, city planning, housing, academia and the private sector kind of thinking through integrated solutions with them. Um, so we need, a, this is happening and we need a lot of more of this kind of going forward. And in terms of good examples, I think there are definitely examples of specific policies from cities that have, you know, been fairly successful for, you know, for example, in Barcelona, we have a paper just came out recently um, analyzing the Barcelona super block, block policy. And, um, you know, the city has kind of embraced this concept of a super block, which is where several city blocks are transformed into like a car-free zone, uh, which prioritizes pedestrian, cyclists, and green spaces. And so it's led to like reduced traffic congestion and improved air quality and kind of increased opportunities for public uh, physical activity as well as social interaction. So I think like there is kind of this growing trend we see in like how urban design policies are globally prioritizing kind of open streets, pedestrians, reducing traffic. You know, there's like the 15 minute city, which was a little controversial in Paris. But I think there needs to be kind of more integration of health in, you know, health impact assessments in urban policy and planning and including public health professionals from the beginning of the process, not just like in the actual designing of the policy solution. So I think that's not being done. And I think that needs to be done uh, a lot more. When you mention open streets, I think of in my backyard, there's a there's a patch that's mossy. And my wife told me, stop mowing that. And we stopped mowing this one patch and all of a sudden uh, where it was just grass and I would cut it like everything else, all these kind of beautiful flowers came up and it's mossy and it's diverse and wild and cool and weird. And uh, I noticed when you do open, like Ann Arbor, Michigan has, uh, they have shut down certain blocks. And as soon as they shut those down, all of a sudden there is art and there's music going on and there's more people congregating and there's thing. And it reminds me of that patch in my backyard where all of a sudden uh, we've gotten rid of, <laughs> you know, doing things the same way all the time. And kind of this beautiful diversity has kind of thrived. So um, it's I nature's really, open street. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I just love those examples. I think it's uh, um, People really like that. People really like when they can just congregate and feel safe and comfortable. So uh, I appreciate that. So what are you optimistic about in this field? What makes you kind of look forward with some um, rosy colored glasses? I mean, I'm generally a very optimistic person. And so I'm, I'm really optimistic about 
you know, innovation, like human capacity, innovate, problem solve, just creative play. I think that we could do a lot better when it comes to collaboration. But yeah, I'm optimistic about the role of technology. You know, I think we come across a lot of kind of dystopian narratives of in the media of technology, but I don't, I don't get so influenced by them. I remain optimistic. Great. Well, that's, that makes one of us. Um, <laughs> I have to ask you before we get to some of the, the fun stuff, uh, do you miss India? I don't know how often you get back, but it seems like a, it's very, very different from where you're at. And do you miss it? I mean, I feel like I stay in touch. I read a lot about India. I, my, I you know, talk to my parents, my brother a lot, uh, and my friends in India. So I feel really connected, and I try to go as often as I, I'm able um, so I, I feel very connected to, to the current events and politics in India. And I, yeah, I'm, so I don't, I don't miss it on a daily basis, but I, I, yeah, I'm, I continue to stay connected. Good. Yeah. It's such a global world now. It, it, it is much easier to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of places that you care about. Um, so before we get you out of here, and this has been so much fun to learn more about your work. Um, I have three really quick questions where you can just answer with one word, or a phrase. Uh, my favorite hobby is being a tourist in my own city. Nice. That's a you're, it's a great place for it. Uh, the best advice I've ever received is uh, you don't always have to ask for permission. Just do it in form later. <laughs> it's uh, as long as no one is harmed. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> nice, nice little asterisk at the end of that one. Uh, my favorite comfort food is. Uh, chai, not chai latte, just chai. Nice. And Saba, what is the last book that you read for fun? You can answer with more than one word or a phrase here. Uh, so I read Street Signs by Jason Corbin. It's kind of about incorporating local knowledge into environmental health policy. So it is for fun, though. But his work has been really influential in shaping kind of my own like theory of practice and research. Well, thank you so much for doing this. We thank met you. in person and you were the first person that I spoke to at length. And I live in a community of about 2,700 people. So your focus on cities uh, is just very fascinating to me and, and worlds apart from what I'm used to. And uh, I'm really glad you're doing it. So thank you so much for talking today. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you. All right, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Saba. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, sign up for our monthly newsletter, which is awesome. And you can stay on top of all the fellows' action and click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on X, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the places. And please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you do your listening. And if you have a moment and want to support us, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. This episode was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Vanhorn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. You can email our team at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when senior fellows Robbie Parks and Jan Michael Archer have a conversation about identity. Have a great week, folks. Bye.